0: okay i'm here with my friend joseph goldstein joseph thanks for coming back on the podcast good to be here sam so we're going to do an ask me anything episode an ama although it's ask us anything here so we went out on twitter asking for questions about meditation and buddhism and the self and relevant topics about which we purport to know something so let's Let's just jump in here and see what we have. And as you might expect, Twitter has disgorged questions about politics that have absolutely no relevance to what we solicited. And I wonder why I am spending so much time off Twitter. Let me find one here. It's amazing. We just got hammered with political questions. Okay. I've noticed that your conversations around mindfulness and meditation rarely touch upon trauma. And dealing with difficult emotions. You often talk about mindfulness as an antidote to difficult emotions. Can you discuss trauma from the perspective of meditation? You are more qualified to do that than I am, Joseph, so
1: please. Well, it does happen that when people come on meditation retreats, they sometimes tap into old trauma uh, that may have happened even as a child, and the experience starts to emerge in the course of meditation practice. So it takes a great deal of care, depending on the severity of the trauma and the kind of experience people are having, because sometimes when people open up to that experience, especially at first, but even in an ongoing way, uh, unless it's handled with care, it can be overwhelming. The emotions that come up, there may not be the capacity to really be mindful and hold it all right away.
0: Would you say that having a certain history of trauma, you know, whether it's PTSD from being in, the, in a war or childhood abuse, is there anything that's just contraindicated from the perspective of starting a meditation practice
1: or doing intensive silent retreat? Uh, it, it could be, because especially on retreat, it is a, an isolating environment. Uh, and sometimes when these emotions are coming strongly and to the point of uh, to the point of some level of overwhelm or not being able to stay balanced with it, um, it may be that more contact, more interpersonal contact actually would be a better a better way of beginning to explore and open up to uh, these feelings that are arising. Uh, one of the things we do when these experiences do arise in the meditation is to coach people in learning how to titrate the experience that is opening to just the intensity of the, mo- the emotion for short periods of time and mm-hmm. backing off. And the backing off could mean some interpersonal contact. It could mean going for some walks, reading, so that the mind is not uh, submerged. In the, in the traumatic experience. Sometimes people who are beginning this exploration want to dive in quickly with the sense of, I want to get to the bottom of this, and that may not be and usually is not the best approach. Mm. Uh, so care is needed in this regard. Actually, that's an, interesting,
0: that's an interesting point that I think relates more generally to negative emotion, you know, trauma or not, it can be certainly very useful to learn to be mindful of negative mental states, but it can also be useful to just pay attention to something else if the negative mental states are in any way overwhelming. I mean, just putting your attention on something else, whether it's creative work or even just solving a math problem, can change your your state, and that can be a, a skillful way to just switch from a negative emotion to something far more benign so it's it's not that you always have to relentlessly pay attention to psychological suffering as the only antidote
1: yeah i think that i think that's right the, the key the key element here i think is really noticing or being aware of the level of balance in the mind as we work with difficult experiences and the same is true for different. Uh, Intense physical sensations. Mm, right. That as long as we can stay balanced with it and open to it, uh, with some level of equanimity, then it can be good to really go in and explore the difficulty, whether it's physical sensations or emotional ones. But when we lose the balance and when it goes to overwhelm, then a different strategy uh, is needed. And there is a whole uh, a whole methodology and and called somatic experience, which has really shown to be pretty helpful in applying meditative understanding to working with trauma, and although I'm not, I'm not an expert in that particular methodology you know, of practice, people have reported that it's been particularly effective in working with trauma, and I think part of it is learning how to redirect the attention uh, away from the difficult emotion or sensation to a safe place. Mm. Yeah, so there's, there's been quite a lot of practice experience in this regard and learning the best the best way to approach these intense experiences, again, when, when it leads to overwhelm or, or loss of balance of mind. Right. And one other
0: point here, which you make often, which should just probably be reiterated here, is that mindfulness is not paying attention to a negative emotion so that it will go away, right? You're not, you're not trying to drive away your, your negative experiences with mindfulness. And if you are, you're, that attention has a you know, aversion built into it. The balance of mind that is mindfulness is a willingness to pay attention to the character of experience, whatever it happens to be, with equanimity. And that's, at least theoretically, it doesn't matter what the contents of consciousness are from the perspective of mindfulness. But that said, certain experiences are so intense that one's practice isn't up for them. And that's that's what we're talking about here.
1: Yeah. And, and so I think this also points to an important distinction that uh, is sometimes overlooked in the understanding of what mindfulness is and what it isn't. And that's the the distinction between uh, recognition and mindfulness. Because very often we think if we recognize what's there, for example, a difficult emotion like fear or anger or rage or or happy, you know, skillful emotions, we might feel that if we recognize it and can name it, that means we're being mindful of it. Mm. But actually, we can recognize something as you mentioned, through the filter of various mind states, like aversion, we want to get rid of this, or desire, you know, if we want to hold on to it, and if we're experiencing the emotions through these filters, then the recognition is there, but it's not mindfulness. And so that's a that's a very useful place to be, particularly observant in our own meditation practice. One teacher uh, uses a very simple technique his a Burmese monk um And he often will suggest to meditators to periodically check the attitude in the mind. Really by asking the question, well what's the attitude right now? And attitude here means, you know, is there some filter present? Mm-hmm. Am I with experience, with aversion, with grasping or not? And I found asking that question to be particularly helpful. So I'll just give one non-traumatic example of this at one point i was meditating just very simply feeling my breath going in and out and it was a it was just a normal meditative experience and then i remembered this instruction and i asked myself the question well what's the attitude in the mind and right in the moment of asking the question i could feel my mind settling back from a wanting that i didn't even know was there till i asked the question and it was very subtle it was like just a slight leaning into the experience you know maybe wanting the mind to become a little more concentrated or wanting calm and i hadn't been noticing the wanting till i asked the question so and again the the asking of the question what's the attitude in the mind or are there any filters in the mind very often it's not even asking the question for the sake of getting an answer but rather, in the very asking of the question, we can often feel the mind settle back uh, from that reactivity.
0: Right, right. Another question here, how do you recognize understanding in your students? Zen seems to have many
1: tests. What about Vipassana? <laughs> <We'd>, <laughs> we don't particularly have the same uh, testing methodology. But You don't <laughs> hit people with sticks. <laughs> but just... Uh, cut off hands. Uh, from, have occasionally done in Zen. <laughs> from years of experience, uh, as people are reporting, as people are reporting their experience in meditation, it's usually pretty easy to discern when and where there's some holding or there's some aversion or something that's not being seen. Hmm. Uh, and so, in the in the meeting, you know, with the meditators, uh, that will often emerge, and then there'll be a discussion about how to unhook from that particular, from that particular uh, holding point. I guess, I think the question is running to levels of realization or, or durable uh-huh, insights, right. uh-huh. not just guiding someone's practice. Uh-huh. There, there, is, there are many maps, as, as you know, of the, describing the meditative path, and in Vipassana tradition, there's a pretty clear map of called the 16 stages of insight, each one quite, uh, with unique characteristics of each stage. And so people who have experience of that can recognize, you know, as people Mm. are reporting their experience, what stage of practice it might be at. And a lot has to do with, in fact, I would say mostly has to do with the refinement of the perception of change and the fact that Things that change are inherently unreliable, and the selfless nature of experience. So it's deepening insight into those qualities or characteristics that often lead the mind through these various stages of insight. And it's pretty well mapped. So I'm going to ask
0: a follow-on question here, which I think we should treat as a separate question. On some level, it seems like because the, the landscape one travels here and the, the skills one develops, are all invisible from the outside. I mean, this this is this is an inner journey. And the difference between very consequential difference between understanding and ignorance is borne out internally in, in terms of one's subjective experience, and and that experience doesn't necessarily always translate into observa- Good <laughs> observable changes in the person. Presumably it does on in most cases, certainly many cases, but on some level you're left to take people's word for what their experience is, right? So as you allude, there's, a, there's a, often a rather shocking and galling mismatch between our expectations of what a deeply realized enlightened person would do in the world and what some so-called meditation masters who have been celebrated for their insights have actually done, you know, when they're when <laughs> left alone on a <laughs> desert island with their attractive <laughs> students. So, and you know, we're we're talking now on the on the heels of of a few public scandals in the Tibetan Buddhist community. So, how do we deal with this fact that on some level, to take an, an analogy, often draw, which is which is decidedly unhelpful here between meditative insight and and athletic ability you know i've often said things like you know there's there are michael jordans of compassion right but the problem is you can see exactly what someone like michael jordan is capable of on a basketball court it's much harder to see what a truly wise person is capable of unless they manage to translate that into some remarkable affect remarkable behavior So how do you deal with this Mm -hmm. in terms of just people's assessing the objective claims about just the meditative
1: path? Uh, So for me, especially over the years of my practice and teaching, I've come to value um, more than reports of particular experiences, which, as you say, can sometimes be hard to assess. and. Uh, whether the person is reporting accurately or not,
0: and also people re- obviously read a lot of books, right, and they, and they read about they read the literature of, of right. reporting these experiences, so their you know their reports of their own experience
1: can become contaminated
0: consciously or yes, not by, yes. by you know what they're thinking about.
1: Yeah, definitely. And so that's why uh, for me, what's become more important is to see whether through the meditative process and the experiences people are having. It results in the diminishment and eventually the uprooting of what in Buddhism in this tradition are called the defilements of the mind or the unwholesome states of whether greed and desire are diminished, whether anger and aversion are diminished, whether we're more awake or more deluded. So that's the measure. And that is easier to uh, assess with people's behavior you know we can see when people are acting out from a place of from a place of greed or a place of lust or mm. a place of anger or annoyance or irritation and so that becomes to me a more significant measure of the transformative uh, the transformative quality in people's practice mm. rather than you know a report of a particular experience which they may call enlightenment or not but if it doesn't translate into these unwholesome mind states being diminished or uprooted, then to me it's much less important. So it's not the experience itself, but how it manifests, which really right. is the measure of the authenticity of the experience.
0: Well, that's that's interesting. That brings me to another question. Whether I'll ever get back to Twitter remains to be seen. Well, then what really are the signposts of progress on the path because i find something problematic with with this notion that there is anything like a linear diminishment of psychological suffering or unskillful behavior or unpleasant emotions with progress on the path of meditative insight and i mean there might be for some people but So I'll just give you two cases. So by the standard you just said, if if someone's negative emotion, you know, their anger and their impatience, say, isn't diminishing with their practice. So in my view, it'd be possible for to have two different people. You you could have a person who has had real insights into the nature of selflessness, say, right? But they don't practice all that much, or their practice is such that their personality isn't changed a lot. I mean, so it's like you know, they're, they're spending 90% of their time lost in thought anyway, right? So then they'll be, you know, their, their personalities will have very much the character of whatever their thoughts are most of the time. But 10% of the time, they are capable of having fundamental and, and rare insights into the, the nature of consciousness. Then you have another person who has no such insights Right. And let's say, let's make this person a meditator. This person is trying to meditate, but not really meditating by your standards. So they're, you know, sitting with their legs crossed and their eyes closed and they're just thinking and they're calling that meditation. But they're making changes to their life that are intrinsically positive. They're getting out of bad relationships and getting into good relationships. They got out of a job they hated and into one they love. They feel all kinds of a positive influx of good emotion and, and salutary change in their life circumstance. And so in them, you could witness positive change of the sort you just you just made a criterion for spiritual progress. And yet, those are two very yes, different projects yeah. that are not antithetical to one another. Obviously, you'd, you'd want to get both going on in the same life. But one arguably is meditative insight that doesn't have much of an outward manifestation, and the other is just positive life change that is just contingent upon on superficial conditions in life changing,
1: and they could obviously change back. So there are a few different considerations here. One is to realize that the transformation in people's behavior happens gradually over time. So it's not necessarily uh, the case that people will have a meditative insight you know, a deep, perhaps a deep one, in you know realizing some level of the impermanence or selfless nature of phenomena. So that is not necessarily going to be translated immediately into behavior changes, but if the realization is genuine, then over time there should be some demonstrable effect in in our mind states. So, for example, the, the Dalai Lama once commented that. You know, if typically we get angry 10 times a day, and after five years of practice, then maybe get angry six times a day. Mm. He said, that's progress in meditation. But generally, people don't take that kind of long-term view in terms of seeing the effect. Uh, So that's, that's one aspect that is really important. The second has to do with the fundamental understanding of the nature of the awakened mind, or the, the uh, characteristics of the awakened mind. And different Buddhist traditions will probably describe this differently. But one that I've come to appreciate a lot in recent years, in my own practice, and then, you know, in working with others, is something uh, that's found in the Buddha's first uh, declaration after his awakening. You know, he's said that in his mind, in his mind arose this, we could call it his enlightenment song, you know, a song of awakening. And it starts with the famous uh, lines of, oh, house builder, you have now been seen Uh, is the house builder of self. Mm. Uh, You will build no house again. And the very last line of that song of awakening, where the Buddha declares, achieved is the end of craving. And I think that is often overlooked as really the characteristic of the free mind. That very often we get entranced by metaphysical descriptions of it, you know, in terms of emptiness or some... Selflessness. Selflessness some, or some, you know, metaphysical <laughs> transcendental description. But I like this because it's very pragmatic. The Buddha said the fruit of realization is the end of craving.
2: Right. The end of clinging.
1: Right. And so for me, I had an interesting experience of this in my meditation practice. One of the one of the lines that's often used in the text to describe where people who have had some realization will describe their realization, uh, with a line that I had read many, many times where it says whatever has the nature to arise will also pass away. So that's often the declaration of people's understanding. Now, I had read this many, many times over the years, and I always kind of nodded internally, well, of course, that's a statement of impermanence. Whatever has the nature to arise will also pass away. Mm. And thought, yeah, that's, that's how it is. But then recently on a meditation retreat, I was sitting and being just in that process the flow of changes of you know mind body experiences and that line came to mind whatever has the nature to arise will also pass away but instead of instead of thinking of it on the conceptual intellectual level you know and nodding <laughs> a mental nod of agreement it's as if that line settled right into the process itself so it took on took on a deeper meaning And I understood, kind of in a new way, the implication of that, which is, particularly in the meditative process, if whatever has the nature to arise will also pass away, the implication of that is there's nothing to want, even nothing to want meditatively, Mm -hmm. because whatever it is that we want will be another arising experience that also passes away. And in that very moment of realizing there's nothing to want, I could feel my mind settle back into not wanting from a very subtle leaning into the process, which had been there in my own practice and I see very commonly in others. We're with this moment, but in a very subtle way, leaning into the next one. Yeah. as if the next moment will somehow resolve everything, forgetting that it's not about some new experience. It's about not wanting. Yeah, And it was really a profound moment, even if it's just less a few moments, to actually experience the mind settle back from wanting, from craving, and to be cognizant of what that is like. You know, so we really get a taste, again, even for just a few moments, of the end of craving. Mm. And it reorients ba- the basic understanding of the practice, because Trungpa Rinpoche once, you know, he wrote a whole book he called Spiritual Materialism. Yeah, cutting through spiritual materialism. Uh, yeah. yeah, and so it's it's just so common, and I, I've seen in myself and in many, many others, that even though we know from the classical Buddhist teachings you know, the third noble truth, the, the truth of freedom is the end of craving. Still, we don't apply that to how we're doing our meditation practice. Mm. And the craving very often slips in, again, in very subtle ways, just the leaning into the next moment.
0: Yeah, or, or even trying to maintain any kind yes. of meditative state. Exactly. So, what, what happens to beginning meditators and even, you know, intermediate meditators and virtually everyone, is you begin to prize certain physiological changes in yourself as the signature of successful meditation. So you, know, you start out, you're just, you know, you're, you're restless, you're uncomfortable, you're distracted, but then when you build up a little concentration, you get all of the the internal glow associated with having a concentrated mind, and that becomes the, the sign that, the, that meditation is, quote, working. It becomes an antidote to Certainly, negative states of mind, and even just the sense of that consciousness is is ordinary. This begins to seem extraordinary, uh, you know, very much like a drug trip, say, when you get very concentrated. And what people do is they they begin to luxuriate in those states of mind, and very subtly or not so subtly hold on to them. And this is this is an instruction that I've seen and. Received in many Dzogchen contexts. I don't remember it ever coming in the Vipassana tradition, but I, I don't know why it wouldn't. And it's in Dzogchen, they often talk about, they often admonish you to not be fixating on anything, not be, you're not trying to prolong anything. And so sometimes teachers will say to just break the meditation. You get up, you open your eyes, you shake it off, and you're, you're trying to break any. Internal efforts, you know, covert or otherwise, to maintain any kind of state. What you want is to is to return to some truly ordinary, uninteresting state of consciousness that then can be recognized as just as empty of self as any quote expansive state of mind.
1: Yeah, well, I think uh, all of those various techniques, you know, serve that purpose. And what I found in this very simple, uh, in a way, very simple experience. Sometimes it's just the reminder in the mind that there's nothing to want, you know, and that's enough. It's It's like bringing in that wisdom reflection right into the process. And depending on one's level of experience and stability, you know, of awareness, just that reminder sometimes is enough. And as I described, I could feel it in myself, that dropping back in the moment From any wanting, any holding, any fixation. So, all of that being said, I don't want to suggest that the development of wholesome states is not a good thing to do. Right. Because we do want to develop, you know, the wholesome states of love and kindness and mindfulness and concentration, but not as an end in themselves, you know, and to see them as being the development of them as being supportive for dropping back from craving letting go of the wanting mind so the two the two levels of practice are related they're not they're right. not disconnected
0: All right, so am I, i'm i'm going to ask a follow up question here so if in the buddhist framework transcending desire transcending craving transcending wanting is in some sense the goal or at least the Inescapable sign of progress. How does that square with any kind of positive aspiration to make change in the world? So, why isn't that a the lazy man's out with respect to shouldering any kind of important responsibility in life? And why isn't that just a council of apathy in the face of real world problems?
1: So there are a few a few things to unpack here. One is, uh, I think, a useful a useful distinction is to make is that between aspiration and
2: expectation. You know, and aspiration sets a direction, so that we're heading
1: in a certain direction, whether it's of awakening or more compassion or. Uh, yeah, compassionate engagement with the world. That's so that sets the direction for us. Expectation is more when we bring this wanting mind, wanting or expecting things to be a certain way when we want them, forgetting that everything's arising out of causes and conditions, and that we need to understand the conditions necessary to bring about a desired result. Um, and there's a very, there's a very important, uh, balance and they're mutually supportive in a, perhaps a non-obvious way, uh, between equanimity and compassion, you know, and equanimity is that spaciousness of mind that can hold whatever's arising. And we see it clearly, whether it's within ourselves or in the world, you know, we see what the situation is without reactivity so we could say that that's the mind of not wanting of not craving Uh, so it's it's more like the mind like space that holds everything but within that space there's discernment we can really see what's skillful what's unskillful what creates suffering what leads to the diminishment of suffering and in that discernment then there's the possibility of compassion arising, wanting to alleviate the suffering. But it's not from a place of uh, clinging. It's not from a place, place of greed. One of the problems is that sometimes the words we use in English to describe our experience of the process, uh, some words have multiple meanings, like wanting right. or desire. So wanting could be the wanting of greed or holding, you know, or clinging to something. Or it could be the wanting or desire of aspiration. There's, we could say, you know, we, we have a, a desire for enlightenment, for awakening, to, for others to be free of suffering. So we might use the word desire, but it's a very different mind state right. than the desire of lust. Yeah. But we're using the same word, so it, it often you know, gets confusing because right. they're actually two very different mind states.
0: Speaking of lust and the various <laughs> scandals we are all too well aware of, how do you view the, the questionable or even unconscionable ethical behavior of certain teachers when it comes under the guise of quote, crazy wisdom or some sort of unconventional, skillful means. There have been teachers over the years who've just gotten away with with everything short of murder mm-hmm. under the banner of you simply can't be guided by your expectations of how an enlightened person should act, because he or she, in, invariably he, is is wiser than you are and knows what's good for you. And it puts you up against this paradox, which is when the guru is misbehaving and making everyone uncomfortable, right? You know, the guru wants to sleep with your wife. It is in fact true to say that all of the parts of your mind that recoil in the face of this challenge are plausibly described as symptoms of your own self-concern and egocentricity. The guru always seems to have the winning move of saying the only reason why you're recoiling from this and not basking in the undivided expanse of, of consciousness and pure being is because you have a problem. Your problem is your own fixation, your own attachment, your own craving. I'm showing you that and now I'm gonna be stripping your wife in the in the next room. How do you view that <laughs> that that
1: apparent paradox? Unfavorably. <laughs> <laughs> because, because it clearly can be and has been, a rationalization for a lot of bad behavior. Um, one of the things I appreciate about uh, the early teachings of Buddhism uh, is the emphasis on uh, silo or ethical behavior as the foundation of a foundation of the practice and a manifestation of realization. And in, sometimes in later traditions, although certainly there is reference to that, uh, it's often not emphasized you right. know, as much. And you see the danger of that.
0: Yeah, I mean, my, my position here is that even mm-hmm. if it is true that the negative response to that kind of behavior from students is largely a matter of their own unenlightenment, right? They're suffering over something that presumably they could transcend. Yes, that's true. But it seems never necessary to provoke that kind of response as a skillful means to teach people how to get over their suffering. There's there's enough suffering happening anyway in life that you don't have to provoke that kind of misery, which it's all too easily confused with your gratifying your own desires in every case. Right. And so even if you were, even if it was coming from a compassionate impulse on the teacher's side and not just rank desire, it just seems like there are other things to do that would be just as skillful that would, would not be that confusing. And in virtually every case, you have to assume that it's it's mingled not with just this imperative to teach people, but it can't be an accident that you see these gurus always having sex with the most attractive (laughs) women they can find among their students and gorging themselves on every other sort of delight and becoming angry at things which are readily interpreted as symptoms of their own narcissism. It all aligns with, with, you know, predictable human foibles and limitations rather than something more
1: interesting and, and
0: unpredictable than that.
1: Well, I, I mean, I <laughs> I agree with that, but I think also there is a spectrum of provocative teacher behavior mm. uh, in the service of helping people to awaken. So, and I, so some of some of that provocative behavior you just described very well, and and is really. Uh, often clearly rooted in t- desire, you know, mm. or lust. But the, I've, I've been with teachers who've used provocative interactions to help uh, the student awaken. So just as an example, which I mentioned last night in the talk here in Los Angeles, uh, at one time I was in Burma practicing with my Burmese teacher, Pandita, mm. and. Whenever I would come in for an interview uh, and report my experience, he would point out the different defilements in my mind. And at first, as he was doing this, I felt terrible. A lot of self-judgment, feeling I was a failure as a meditator. You know, and each time he would do it, it's like I would cringe inside. Oh, uh, you know, look at, as he would be pointing out the various unwholesome parts of my mind. Yeah. And then one time I went in, and this is after weeks of practice, I went in and I just gave a report and he listed 10 different defilements that were going on. And at that point, I just started to laugh, you know, and it was really interesting. As soon as I stopped reacting to his pointing it out, mm. he stopped doing it. Yeah. So it, it was like he was just going to press my buttons until I no longer took it personally. But in that kind of situation or that kind of provocation, there was no. That was not coming from any unwholesome part in his mind. Right. So there, there is a place for that kind of pushing of buttons, you know, as a way of helping people free themselves from their own reactivity. But it can be a tricky <laughs> or a slippery slope, uh, And that's why we really have to have a lot of basic trust in, in the teacher's motivation. And that trust comes from an observation of behavior. Yeah. reminds me of what it was like to practice with Upandita. And one of the
0: most amusing things from those retreats were those interviews where you would, you you know, every day or every other day, you'd have a 10-minute interview with him. And, you know, he was always a total sweetheart with me. I mean, I'd heard stories about him. He was about what a taskmaster he was. If you were suffering from sleepiness, they would offer to give you their their eye drops that were laced with cayenne pepper. I never tried those. I think you did. Back did. in the, Yeah. So they could singe your singe your eyes. But one of the, the novelties of this these interviews was that you could always hear the interview before yours because you were just you're queued up in the hallway, you know, waiting waiting for your, your slot. And for one of these retreats, the person he was interviewing before me was getting. The hardest treatment from him. And, you know, I was encountering a completely different person when I would come in there. But I remember for, in one of these interviews, he said to this guy, you know, who had reported his experience in meditation, Sayadaw's response was, it's a pity you don't have more courage. <laughs> <laughs> and sent him off with that, right? And then, and then I walked in and he was just a, a teddy bear. All right. So we have another question here, very different from the last. All right, so this is a, a longish question, which can be summarized by, uh, I'll read it, but the, the summary question is, essentially, how do you square this, this concern about diversity in the community of meditators and meditation teachers with this fundamental insight into selflessness? And, and so here, here's the question. I'm noticing that the insight meditation community, Spirit Rock and IMS, is placing an increasing level of importance on promoting teacher diversity, with diversity being defined explicitly by skin color, people of color, etc. On the surface, I understand the motives for this. It's useful to bring the teachers to marginalized groups, and many of these groups are defined by these characteristics. My worry, however, is that these good intentions inadvertently sneak the primacy of selfhood and identity back into the one place in society where we would want and expect it to be expelled from, our meditation halls. We end up with a scenario where, while listening to Dharma talks on non-self, practitioners are implicitly led to define themselves by skin color and bathe in the warm glow of this imagined identity. Shouldn't we be asking people to receive teachings from a white teacher in the same way as from a black teacher? And this is, I should just point out, this is from a person who would also be described as a person of color, an Indian man, based on the name. So, Joseph, what say you
1: about your your diversity efforts? Well, as indicated uh, in the question, it is a very complex arena because of the historical and cultural conditioning around uh, race in this country and different and other marginalized uh, groups. Uh, So there are a few different considerations here. As the foundational understanding, I think it's important to remember that we operate on different levels of experience and understanding. And in the Buddhist context, this is often described as the relative level and more ultimate level. So, for example, when we're doing loving-kindness practice, we're doing that practice on the relative level of being. It's... So we're actually acknowledging the relative level of self and other. So when we're extending loving kindness and may you be happy, may you be free of suffering, may I be happy and free of suffering, it's all grounded in that relative level of separate self, you know, of of self and other. And this is a reality and it's probably the prevalent reality of our lives. This, this relative sense of individuality, of self, with all the particular uh, conditioning, mm. you know, on that level. Another level is, we could call the more ultimate level, where self disappears, and we just see that it's, that our actual life experience is the moment-to-moment unfolding of what in Buddhism are called the five aggregates, or you could say just the, the different elements of mind and body arising and passing very quickly, in which there's no self, there's no other, there's not a reference point uh, of individuality, and we're, we're seeing a more fundamental level of reality. Um, so just as an example of this, you know, if we have a, a glass, you know, for drinking water, on the obvious level of uh, perception, we see the glass, we understand what it is, we use it, we pour water and we drink out of it. If we looked at that glass through a high-power microscope, glass would disappear. The whole level of reality of glass is no longer there, and we're seeing another, another mm. level. It's exactly in the same way, you know, on, on the relative level, there's self and other, with everything uh, that's entailed,, you know, in, in that individuality. And on another level, self disappears. So the first point is to realize that both of these levels are operative. It's not that somehow we're able to separate, you know, that the relative level is on one side and the ultimate level is on the other. It's the same, it's the same unified experience seen from different levels or different perspectives. Mm. So on the relative level, the move towards diversity and inclusion and equity is the acknowledgement that on the relative level there are a lot of things going on in our society, in ourselves, in meditation, meditation institutions that for one reason or another, out of social conditioning, may make it an unwelcoming place for either people of color or other marginalized groups that they may not feel uh, comfortable in coming into, for example, an all-white environment with the dominant cultural uh, qualities or attributes being uh, being predominant or, or characteristic of the environment um So, for example, I've heard very often that you know people of color may be coming to a retreat, and they are the only one, or maybe one of two out of a hundred right so just that experience that creates and has created in people, and this is you know the the report from them of one might say non relaxation you know or some uncertainty, based on based on the lived cultural experience in this country, and so part of the part of the interest and in really what's what's inspiring us to do some of this work is to really see the ways in which the institutions and the context of a retreat may be unwelcoming in ways we're not, as, as the dominant culture may not even be aware of. Uh, and then to see if we can uh, create a really, uh, an environment that is inclusive and where people do feel welcome and in a place of ease and relaxation. Mm. And so it is addressing some of these Issues and and trying to create that kind of environment, in which people can then settle back more easily into that meditative state of the more ultimate reality, where self and other and race and all other kinds of uh, you know diverse attributes, where they're no longer operative, where we are on that more right. ultimate level and we experience those levels of realizations.
0: I can imagine multiple ways. Of trying to correct for this, though, and some would run afoul of this questioner's concerns, and some wouldn't. So, for instance, I think we could all acknowledge that being the only black person, say, on a 100-person retreat, is less than optimal amount of diversity. Certainly, from the perspective of the person there, but so you could you could try to recruit more. Black students in this case, but if you wanted something more representative of society on retreats, but trying for more outreach in these communities, it would be different than, say, having a people of color retreat where only people of color would come to it. That would be a different effort. That second response, at least I'm imagining from the questioner's point of view, would seem to kind of reify the importance of this rather than just behind the scenes recruiting more and more in in various communities to make retreats look more and more like society at large, you're now saying we're gonna have a retreat just for lesbians or a retreat just for for people of color that seems to call attention to this variable as having some kind of primacy in a way that on the substance of the question would seem odd or potentially misleading.
1: Yeah, and that 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 has been a critique, uh, you know, offered uh, for different of these retreats. But the experience of having these retreats, and it could be a retreat for people of color or the LGBTIQ community or women's retreats, and the the experience of having these retreats has been very valuable because for people who, for one reason or another, do feel marginalized in some way in society, these retreats provide a an environment of safety that is welcoming for people, you know? And I've, I've heard this from many people and in, in these various diverse groups, uh, you know, women have said, That on a women's retreat, there's a level of relaxation and openness that they can experience, you know, and shared understandings uh, that is very valuable and different than a mixed retreat. And it's the same for the people of color retreats. So it's the understanding that, yes, theoretically, on the more ultimate level, these differences are not important. And they, in fact, they disappear. But on the relative level, they are the lived experiences of people, both on retreat and in the world. And acknowledging that uh, and providing an opportunity for people to come in a situation that feels safe and feels welcoming hmm. often is the doorway for people to enter into the practice, to deepen their practice, and then to find that they feel. At ease in mixed retreats, ones that are not specialized. So I just see it as a very valuable, very valuable entrance point, you know, into the practice. And there's one other point: um, it's not only about creating a, a feeling of welcome or inclusivity; it's also the recognition that people from diverse backgrounds bring diverse perspectives on the dharma you know and which aspects of the dharma really relate to their experience and the way the dharma teachings are expressed you know as we know just from the history of buddhism as as the teachings went from one culture to the to another from india to china to mm. japan the teachings got expressed in very different ways dependent on the culture and so it's not that there's just one fixed way of conveying the teachings, right? And so, as we get more diverse populations into the practice, it's actually enriching for the practice. It's not simply, you know, creating a welcoming, uh, well, welcoming environment. It's actually enriching the whole, the whole uh, scene. Okay. Well, <laughs> I will uh, let that
0: stand. Yeah. <laughs> um, somehow, I think we're not going to satisfy this particular questioner. A question about psychedelics, Joseph. says huh. a reader of Michael Pollan's recent book, Michael Pollan was recently on this podcast talking about his book on psychedelics. A very good book. It seems I could fast-track years of meditation by just going on a psychedelic mushroom journey. This is the questioner. Does Joseph have thoughts on using psychedelics and how they how they fit in here do they do, do psychedelics supersede meditative efforts there are certainly people who over the years have said that really were such hard cases that only the the hammer of a high dose psychedelic experience can crack things open for us terence McKenna famously said that you know he was distrustful of any recommendation beyond or of any recommendation short of a significant dose of psilocybin or DMT or, or less to his taste, LSD. And, you know, any recommendation that people visit a certain teacher or try a certain yoga practice or breath-based meditation, that this is just not of sufficient firepower to help most people most of the time?
1: Well, I think that ignores thousands of years of history of people doing the doing various practices and Mm. being transformed by them so i think
0: that's (laughs) his position is a bit extreme right i think his position was that most of these practices were originally done in concert with taking psychedelics and that you know that when you're when you're on high doses of mushrooms basically everything seems to work and and meditation makes a lot of sense
1: but when you're not (laughs) you're just left alone with your your ego I, 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 don't think, I don't think that's accurate to say, certainly within the Buddhist tradition. Right. I, I don't think it started with the psychedelic experience. Uh, so that being said, and the history of thousands of years of people practicing without it and being transformed, so the thought that it's a necessary component of a path seems a little off to me. Hmm. That being said, and both from my own experience, Back in the day, and you know the experience of many others, a psychedelic experience can open up some different level of understanding in a very in a very dramatic way. Um, so, a couple of points about that: one is there can be a lot of experiences that happen, both with or without psychedelics, uh, that people take to be enlightenment and actually are not. They're just some altered reality, you know, a cosmic experience. And this goes back to what we were saying earlier. If it doesn't result in the weakening or uprooting of the defilements of mind, then no matter how altered the experience is, it seems to me of less value or not that ultimately significant that the real test is in the transformation of mind not the particular experience that people have it is possible that people do have a genuine some genuine level of realization on a psychedelic experience but the question then is then what and the answer to that question uh, is expressed in teachings by an 11th century Korean Zen master, his name was Shinul, mm. and he framed, he framed the path in a way that I find very uh, interesting. He called it sudden awakening, gradual cultivation.
0: Yeah, that's and, a
1: great book, by the way, tra- tracing back the radiance. Yes, yeah. uh, and so that points to the possibility of having a sudden awakening from whatever means, whether it's with psychedelics, you know and there's a sudden awakening to a deeper level of reality or well, without psychedelics just in meditation we have a sudden awakening but this one moment of awakening is the beginning not the end and it takes a gradual cultivation of that to really integrate the realization in a meaningful way into our lives and that takes a practice i don't see psychedelics as being a practice i see it as being an opening to potentially an opening to a certain kind of experience mm. which might or might not be helpful but if it is helpful then it needs to be cultivated in a systematic and methodical way right. and i think that's that's the great value and strength of a meditation practice so we begin yeah. to integrate you know that that particular experience and yeah. deepen it
2: yeah
0: i mean the piece i would add here is that the crucial insight from meditation which you almost by definition don't get with psychedelics is that ordinary conscious experience is just as yes transcendental to use a loaded word or just as selfless just as free as the most psychedelic transformation of the contents of consciousness so you don't need any of the pyrotechnics yes to notice that the ego doesn't exist, right? Or that the, the self is an illusion. And it's hard to see that when your method is just a matter of invoking yes. the pyrotechnics. Yes, so here we're in
1: rare agreement, Sam. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I would it. just, I agree completely with that. And it would refer back to what we were talking about earlier, how in, in some way the fundamental freedom of mind is in the end of craving, is in the right. mind that's not craving, not clinging. So to use a Josephism, which I've used very often over the years, it doesn't matter to what you don't cling. Mm. So you don't have to have a cosmic experience not to cling to. We might as right. well not cling to this moment's experience yeah. because <laughs> it's the not clinging that is the operative Uh, word, not the experience itself. Right, right. But it
0: is hard to see
1: what is
0: free and unconditioned about ordinary experience. A flip side of this is when you look at the impediment to the range of insights we're talking about here, which is to say when you look at what keeps ordinary experience Truly ordinary in the, in the sense of you know mediocre, dull, unilluminated by any kind of insight, it is incredibly subtle. I mean, it's just just being lost in thought. I mean the, the, what, and this is something you spoke about last night, it is genuinely paradoxical that something as insubstantial as a thought, this next thought, whatever it is, however fleeting, has the capacity To completely submerge, seemingly completely submerge consciousness into this sense of one dualistic clinging to this sense of self in each moment, but two, it produces whatever the emotional and neurophysiological consequences are of the contents of that thought. So if you you have a thought of about something that terrifies you or something that humiliates you. It can be the briefest impingement of just a fleeting image or, or piece of language or just rehearsing the last phrase in a conversation you had forgotten until now, and it, it just borne back to you in all its horrible awkwardness, that suddenly your your whole mind is captured by this phantom. So, Joseph, what is a thought? Why is anyone suffering any of this, ever? No. <laughs>
1: I I think we are because we very rarely ask ourselves the question, what is a thought? We're so habituated to being lost in the story of our thoughts, lost in the content of our thoughts, commenting on our being lost or not being lost. And it's very rare that people will actually ask the question, what is a thought? Not for the sake of an intellectual or conceptual answer but as a device for looking directly at it and seeing, as you said, the essential emptiness and ephemerality of it. Uh, So that question itself becomes a very useful meditative uh, tool when we're having a lot of thoughts just to ask ourselves the question, well, what is it? And looking directly at it and seeing how empty it is. So just asking that question what is a thought really can help break the seduction of the storyline you know and and we see it as just a passing phenomena and seeing the contrast between being lost in the thought and seeing it as kind of a bubble in the mind that contrast is so uh, revealing so one way of tuning into this which I found very helpful, again, both in my own practice and with many others, is really watching. We, we all have the experience of we're, we're in a meditative process and then we get lost in a thought for some time and at a certain point we wake up you know, to the fact that we're thinking. Generally what people will do in that moment of waking up from being lost will hurry back to whatever object of meditation they think they should be on. whether it's a body or breath or sounds, whatever it may be. I found it really helpful in that moment of awakening from being lost to actually take a few moments' reflection to experience what it was like to have been lost. And since we've just come out of being lost, Mm -hmm. it's accessible to us. Oh, right. that's, what it, that's what the mind was like when it was lost. And then in that moment of transition, we can contrast that very clearly with what's the quality or nature of the mind when it's awake. Mm. And so that gives us a very clear picture of the nature of the deluded mind and the nature of the awake mind right in that moment of transition. Mm. So it's, it's a powerful moment not to overlook Another principle that is very hard to remember but is fundamental to the meditative process, and it's hard to remember, even for experienced meditators, we just kind of forget this again and again, that from the perspective of meditation and insight and freedom, what it is that's arising, the particular experience that's arising, is not important it doesn't matter what's arising what's important from this perspective is how we're relating to it you know right so that is what the meditative process is about it's not about trying to control what experiences arise it's always about what's the relationship to that experience
0: which is the point you just made with this strange mantra it doesn't matter what you're not clinging to exactly let's linger on this experience of of being lost in thought and awakening to that, that first moment. I mean, I, my view of this is, whenever I've discussed this, it sounds to Western ears, and certainly to the ears of any anyone who's a psychologist or who studies the mind scientifically, it sounds strangely uncharitable to say what I'm about to say. For me, this doesn't seem too strong, that being lost in thought is analogous to dreaming and not knowing that you're dreaming when we're asleep the notion of waking up is is almost literally true as far as an analogy but that also means that it is it is analogous to a kind of psychosis it does feel like a mental illness to be continually submerged without knowing it by these again, the most gossamer and insubstantial and ineffectual appearances in consciousness when recognized, but when not recognized, they are one's all-encompassing reality. It is the, the absolute paradigm of delusion. You are convinced that something is there which isn't there, that certain things must follow which need not follow. This becomes obvious to everyone once people begin to helplessly vocalize their thoughts, that is, talk to themselves in public. So when you see someone talking to himself in public, who doesn't know enough just to shut his (laughs) mouth, right? That person's insane, right? And we've all been that person very briefly, and and that's embarrassing. Like, So like you're in public, and you suddenly remember something that you forgot, and you say, oh shit, I can't believe I..." You're talking to yourself in front of people, right? So for that brief moment, you're a madman. The difference between you and a madman is the madman just doesn't stop. But we're doing that all day long within the silence of our own minds, within the, within the privacy of our own minds. And when you see the alternative, which is mindfulness, everything else seems insane. Is that putting it too strongly?:
2: <laughs> No,
1: it, it, it's putting it in a same like way, which I haven't again. A, we're, we're very much in alignment in all this, and everything you just said could also have been me speaking. <laughs> uh, so I totally relate to it. And I mean, I, I it, mean what, but, I'm,
0: what I'm not, count, I'm not saying that people need to be judgmental of this experience. No, no. I'm just saying this, this to recognize how bizarre it is to be this disconnected yes. Yes. by this thing, virtually every yeah. every moment of the day.
1: Yeah. So uh, there are a couple, just a couple of things I would say. Uh, I think I would probably tend to use uh, the word "deluded" rather than "insane." Mm. Although they, they, uh, it seems that people might uh, but delu- be more open, more open to yeah. seeing
0: it. But delusion is as a kind term; of it, it, it carries a lot of weight within the Buddhist lexicon. Right. You're using delusion uh. as, a, as a fundamental. If, way of, of of
1: just right completely far, not, mistaken, not seeing around. what's yeah. what. Yeah. So just one of uh, my first teacher Meninja's, uh little sayings, which just illustrates this point. <laughs> he would often say, "The thought of your mother is not your mother; it's a thought. Right. The thought of anything is not the thing; it's a thought." And again, to to see that is very liberating. So we're not confusing the two. We're running out of time here, Joseph, so
0: a few quick questions and quick answers. In Western culture, it appears that one of the biggest challenges for meditators is trying too hard and adopting the same approach one might at the gym to the practice of meditation. The harder I train, the fitter I'll get. What's your perspective on applying the right amount of effort?
1: Well, the, the right effort is a key component of of the Buddhist teachings, and it's a delicate art. You know, in the example... Uh, the classic example given is tuning the strings of a lute, you know, not too tight, not too loose, in order to get the the proper sound. And so it's an ongoing, um, it takes an ongoing sensitivity and adjusting to really watch when we're striving too hard. And then it's a question of settling back and opening up and letting the mind become more spacious and choiceless. At other times we become too spaced out where there's not enough effort you know and that time collecting the attention in some way uh, will serve to bring about balance so this is this is this adjustment you know is is an ongoing part of the path we mm. need to be cognizant of the quality of our effort at any particular time so that being said it's also interesting there's a teaching which describes four paths to success success here are, in terms of uh, deepening insight mm. and realization. And it really depends, the paths depend on uh, different personality configurations. So one of the paths to success is effort, you know, and so there are some people who are inspired by and challenged by difficult tasks, you know, and it arouses that quality of, we might say enlightenment or bust, mm-hmm. you know, and. and it's the making of the effort that is energizing and inspiring for them. It does need to be done in balance, but as a, as a quality, as a driving quality in the mind, it can be a vehicle for realization. For other people, it's more um, investigation rather than effort. You know, so it's not that, it's not that the, the challenge of a difficult task inspires you know, tremendous effort. To do it, for another kind of person, it's just interest in how the mind is working and in understanding the mind. So that becomes their path to success. Mm. And their are, there are, uh, concentration can become a path to success. You know, that becomes the vehicle. So for different, for different people, different personality types, there will be different emphases in what actually moves us forward.
0: Right. What is the biggest misconception about Buddhism or about meditation?
1: Well, I, I think the biggest misconception perhaps about Buddhism is that it's all about suffering. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, because uh, in terms of the Four Noble Truths, you know, which are the foundational teachings of the Buddha, it's often translated as the truth of suffering and the cause of suffering and the end of suffering and the path leading to the end of suffering and suffering seems to be, you know, in bright lights. But that word, this suffering, is not a good translation of the Pali word dukkha, which is often translated as suffering, but it's not, it's not uh, in many cases, not so useful because there's a lot of situations in our lives that are not suffering, that are pleasurable and enjoyable, uh, and that we, we would not call this is suffering. Mm-hmm. So when the is talking about the first noble truth, the truth of dukkha, he's talking about a characteristic of all experience, of all conditioned experience, as being unreliable because of their impermanence. So that can be applied equally well to painful situations or pleasant situations. They're all unreliable and therefore not worth clinging to. Uh, so I think that is one of the fundamental misconceptions about Buddhism. I don't know if we
0: want to answer this question. I'll pitch it to you. You decide. There's a question about transcendental meditation and how it differs from mindfulness meditation. I've said some somewhat disparaging things about TM in the past, really just about the the seemingly kind of mercenary Nature of the organization, not really, not about the mantra-based mm. technique. But do you have a? Obviously, many people do TM and and seem to get a great benefit from it. How do you view the the technique of TM in light of what
1: you're up to mm. in the mindfulness game? There's a basic uh, distinction between two broad streams of meditation practice, which which crosses. Um, all traditions, you know, whether Buddhist or Hindu or any other, there are the techniques which focus on the development of concentration, one-pointedness, and there are many techniques for doing this. It could be mantra, it could be visualization, it could be a sound, where we take a single object and train the mind to stay steady on it. And this this develops the capacity of one-pointedness in the mind, which can become very deep, very strong, very powerful. The other stream of meditation we might call insight practices as opposed to concentration practices where the main focus is on refining the perception of change and impermanence and selflessness where insight is the primary uh, emphasis rather than one-pointedness. Now these two are not in conflict because the stronger concentration we have, the easier it is to develop insight because the mind is not so scattered and not so frequently lost. Uh, But in and of themselves, they're two different techniques with different purposes.
0: Another question here. Saying the phrase consciousness and its contents seems to invite a duality and to reify consciousness as a thing that one is, can you clarify this so as to avoid making this mistake? this is actually, this is a phrase I use a lot, consciousness and its contents. I'll give my two cents and then get yours. Consciousness is this, this knowing quality of mind. It's the, the fact of consciousness is the fact that it's like something to be us, whatever our circumstance is, whatever, whatever reality actually is, and however we may or may not understand it. The fact of consciousness, whether this is a simulation, whether we're a brain in a vat, whether this is just a dream, The fact of consciousness is utterly established by anything seeming to happen, whatever the status of that seeming actually is. So, to be confused is also to be conscious. To think that you know what reality is and be wrong about it is to be conscious. Consciousness is not predicated on being right about anything, it's just predicated on the lights being on in any way at all. And one can clearly differentiate the Consciousness from its contents, in the sense that consciousness is the space in which everything's appearing, and whatever is appearing is the contents. So, thoughts and emotions and and sensations, these are all things we can describe, and it's one can say something is present or absent based on particularizing the contents of consciousness. But the duality collapses when you recognize that the contents are. In some basic sense, made of consciousness. I mean, there's no, there's nothing. There, there's a, there's a, a medium. There's a kind of reaffined language, but it's, it's. There's a, a medium or a, a context that gets modified or apparently modified by the way, in our case, the way our nervous system sections up reality. So we have kinds of perceptions, and sensations, and mental objects and apparent changes but all of which when consciousness is recognized to be without self or without center all of which has the character of seeming to modify a medium that they are inseparable from so the usual analogies seem apt when you talk about the way things can appear in a mirror right when you recognize a mirror as a mirror all of the the light and the color and the shadow in the mirror is of a piece with the reflective properties of the mirror itself, or the analogy that many people often use as a film. You're watching a display of light and color and shadow on a wall, right? The film is everything that seems to be happening. You know, a fire appears to be burning a building, but all of it is made of, of light. Everything has the exact same status as being within the medium of what is being broadcast there, which is light. So these kinds of insights into the openness and the intrinsic freedom of consciousness, the claim that is often made that consciousness, in some sense, transcends its content, it does. It's the prior condition of anything that's appearing, but anything that does in fact appear is also of a piece with whatever consciousness is in itself. So there's no, there's no ultimate division between consciousness and object, and to maintain such a division, is to impose a kind of conceptual framework on there which can be seen through and and lost when you're paying close enough attention. Anyway, that's the way I I would think about it. And uh, for the one person I didn't confuse by that answer, my congratulations to you.
1: (laughs) I do want to offer a simpler description. (laughs) Uh, So I, I think it addresses this question, but we'll see. And that is realizing that two things can be distinguishable but inseparable. And so, for example, we look at some object, and could be anything. I'm, I'm, now I'm looking at a flashlight on your desk, you know, and so I'm looking at this black flashlight, and there's a color to it and a form. And those two aspects are distinguishable. The color is not form and the form is not color. And yet you can't separate them. The color is in a form and the form has color. And I think that same analogy in terms of knowing an object, they are distinguishable aspects. So as you said, consciousness is the the capacity of knowing, the capacity of awareness, as you said, the lights on uh, aspect of the mind. that can be distinguished from the particular content arising in consciousness, and yet it's inseparable from it. And so I think that addresses the the problem of being with these two aspects in a non-dual way. Because we see right. the inseparability, but that doesn't mean that everything just mushes together and is indistinguishable.
0: Right. One question about the quality of mindfulness does mindfulness in terms of its power exist along a spectrum or are we simply talking about more identical moments of mindfulness how do you think about mindfulness growing in its Mm. power or capacity
2: i
1: think there are two two uh ways of looking at that one is in just the increased uh the increased continuity of moments of mindfulness. So uh, I have a phrase which I use sometimes. I call them NPMs, which are noticings per minute. Mm. You know, And so in the beginning of practice, maybe there are 10 NPMs. But with practice, that number goes way up. So for example, in the beginning, we might be aware of an in-breath and an out-breath. With practice, we see that within the in-breath, there are myriad different sensations you know, hundreds, maybe thousands of different sensations that may be going on within an in-breath. And so the NPMs, the noticings per minute, as mindfulness deepens, goes way up. So that's one way of understanding the deepening or strengthening of that faculty. The other way has to do with, you might say, the level of focus or the level of clarity in a moment of mindfulness because there's a state that's very common uh, among meditators, and we see it often on retreat. I call it times when we're more or less mindful. We're kind of there, we're kind of present, we're not totally lost in our thoughts, but we're not fully there. we're not fully embodied. you know, and so that's another refinement of what mindfulness means, where we go from that. Kind of being present to being completely present.
0: Mm. A related question here is there a very wide range of talent with respect to mindfulness? Are there people who take up the practice of meditation and are instantly Mm. good at it, successful, and don't encounter the usual range of frustrations and seemingly hard won progress? Are there people who just are prodigies of meditation?
1: Uh, there are. I, I would say they're not, they're not the majority. Uh, but the Buddha described four ways of making progress on the path. He described slow progress with a lot of pain. Hmm. Slow progress with a lot of ease. Quick progress with a lot of pain. Quick progress with a lot of ease. Right. And all of this is conditioned uh, within the Buddhist context of understanding uh, by one's past karma, you know what we've developed, and again within the Buddhist framework, which, in this particular domain, may not appeal to many of your listeners, but the whole idea of rebirth, you know, and many lives, and so within the within the Buddhist teaching, you know, we we come into this life already with different propensities, different right. things that have been developed, and so some people come in already or. Even if one doesn't subscribe to, you know, past, past lives or future lives, even within this one lifetime, some people have developed strong concentration through one right. means or another.
0: Moving on to this next question, with respect to rebirth, karma, and all, all the, the, the mm. rest of the metaphysics of Buddhism, do you think that there is a, a totally secular, rational, non otherworldly version of all of those ideas that can be justified and motivating within the context of this life? I mean, can you? Th- yeah. is, there's a, a version of thinking about yes. karma and yes. rebirth within the context of yes. any life, or even within the context
1: of a single yeah. minute or hour. Yeah, I think there is in, in in two different ways. So one of the ways that it's often been interpreted in the West for people who don't necessarily have this, you know, the Buddhist metaphysical background. Uh, rebirth is sometimes described as rebirth in different realms depending on our mind states. Like if if we're consumed with hatred, it's a hell realm. Right. If the mind is filled with kindness and compassion, it's a heaven realm, you know, and so just Seeing that we're taking rebirth moment to moment in different realms according to what mind state is arising, you know, and develops. So that's one way of understanding rebirth. That's, yeah. that's actually in this life moment to moment. Another way of understanding that is one that I really am coming to appreciate more and more karma as under the, the unfolding of karma within this lifetime. Uh. I'm seeing and appreciating increasingly as just being the effect of our mind states and actions on our own minds. In other words, we could think of consciousness as being the inner environment in which we live and operate. What are we doing? How are we influencing this environment? Mm -hmm. Are we polluting it? Are we purifying it? And so we can understand the immediate effect of karma, of whether something leads to happiness or suffering, right in terms of what is the effect of this particular mind state on my own mind. If I'm, as I I said a little earlier, if, if I'm filled with anger or hatred or lust or whatever, the immediate karmic result of that is some kind of contraction, tension, suffering, you know, and we have wholesome mind states, the immediate karmic effect is one of greater ease and greater spaciousness. So the karmic effect can be understood very pragmatically in the moment by watching the effect on our own minds.
0: Yeah, and and also that there are further ramifications of that, obviously, just in terms of what you say to others, how you treat them, how they treat you in in return. So you can see that just play out over the course of moments and minutes in your life. Okay, final question, Joseph, because we are unfortunately out of time. Can you help me with my struggle to understand the concept of non-inherent existence in Buddhism? The idea that this is now a Nagarjuna quote, or purports to be, quote, understanding the non-inherent existence of things means seeing the reality, i.e. emptiness, which eliminates ignorance about the reality of things, end quote. What is emptiness, Joseph?
1: So one of the meanings of, th- of that term, emptiness, which is a classic Buddhist term, which is not immediately obvious in the English rendition mm. you know, of, of emptiness, means that nothing has an inherent self-existence because everything is dependently arising. Things arise out of causes and conditions. And so it's not that something exists independent of conditions. It arises because of them. Uh, and so that's, that's, the, that's the essential emptiness of the phenomena. Mm. Um, so just as an example, just take the phenomena of a rainbow. You know, you go outside after a storm and you see this beautiful rainbow in the sky and we usually have delight and joy in seeing it. But the rainbow is not a thing in itself. A rainbow is an appearance arising from the conjunction of certain conditions of air and moisture and light. And these conditions come together, rainbow appears. When we understand that there's no thing called rainbow, that Mm. rainbow is simply an appearance arising out of these conditions coming together, so then we're beginning to see that rainbow does not have some self-existent nature. It's contingent upon or an appearance dependent upon the conditions. And this is true of all our experience. So there's nothing at the core of things.
0: Well, there's this added fact that the things that we perceive as things, for the most part, perhaps without exception, tend to be conceptually designated upon their parts in a way that is susceptible to analysis. So you take something, this works for a rainbow, but it works better for something like a car. And you think of a car as a thing, but then you can ask yourself, well, what is a car without doors and without wheels and without a hood and without window glass? And like, when does it cease to be a car? You see that this notion of a car is an aggregate of car parts there's no carness intrinsic to any of the parts there's no carness within the door or within the wheel or within the axle but you get them all together and we have a quote car but it is a it is a conceptual designation upon a on relationships and you know every complex thing that we talk about is that you know whether it's a, a school or a democracy or a person and things that are truly simple we're rarely dealing with them. I mean, even when we're talking about atoms, we're not talking about something that isn't built upon relationships. All of that sounds quite abstract and and philosophical and uninformative for someone's lived experience. For me, the notion of emptiness links back very directly and experientially to what we were talking about earlier about the nature of consciousness and, and the differentiation between consciousness and its contents, so that when you're looking at objects in your field of view, in you know, in visual consciousness, it's very easy to fixate on them as objects. There's a pen over there, there's a book, there's a flashlight, there's a phone. Those are all different. I can see all of them. They're all objects. But my visual field is an appearance, is appearing in and as consciousness. And so all of those objects are very much like objects that I've seen in a mirror where they're only kind of nominally and conceptually designated upon a field of light and color, which is not a pen or a book or a phone or or a flashlight. And in some sense, conscious experience very much has that character where you can just see an expanse of your visual field, and the the perception of objects is an additional operation within that space. And in many cases. It can be mistaken. You think you've seen something, mm. and you actually haven't. You know, and, and and that that transition is often illuminating because then you just see that your experience is made of the concept more than it's made of the actual valid perception of the of the thing there.
1: I just want to make an attempt to perhaps offer a simpler explanation, something <laughs> less confounding <laughs> for my poor old yeah. brain. <laughs> uh, I think a lot what you just described uh, can be experienced very directly when we, s- when we see the difference
2: between, for example, when we're mindful of the bare experience of seeing and then
1: the thought process which gives a name or a designation to it. Mm. And so we say conventionally, I see the flashlight. But actually, the eye does not see flashlight. The eye sees right. color and form, and however the the rods and cones work in the eye, and then the mind thinks flashlight and overlays right. the concept on although, top of it.
0: Although, in defense of of <laughs> seeing <complexity>. objects, yeah, <laughs> seeing a flashlight isn't contingent upon saying the word flashlight to oneself. I mean, the, the concept is is is. Harder to get a hold of than that, it's less conscious
1: than that I mean you're, yeah
0: but it's we often do gratuitously name things
1: that we see as well to ourselves, but no, I know the recognition can be very immediate and yeah, with, without that seemingly seemingly unmediated but, by thought yes, but it, but when you look carefully, you see on some level that there is a conceptual designation, and so I'll just give you an example of something that you probably familiar with the artist Kandinsky, mm. who was, he's, he's considered to be the, the, the first of the abstract painters, and there's a story of his opening to that realm when he was at an exhibit of Monet's a series of haystack paintings mm-hmm. uh, in St. Petersburg, and I think this was in the beginning of the 1900s. Uh, not exactly sure of the date, so it's just the turn of the 20th century. Um, so he was looking at these paintings and he was looking so intensely that at a certain point he stopped seeing haystack and all he saw were color and brushstrokes. And it was such a profound dissolution of the conceptual world. So he probably wasn't thinking haystack, you know, in the mind. But he was perceiving yeah. Haystack. And then he dropped to this other level where Haystack disappears. And it's just a world of color and, and brushstrokes and, and all of that. And it was a profound revelation for him. You know, he, he said this world of color exploded in his consciousness. So I think that even if we're not conscious of actual, the actual thought in the mind, Haystack or Flashlight, mm still there is some conceptual overlay on the bare perceptual act of seeing yeah and both in meditation practice or in his example sometimes just with intense attentiveness we drop down beneath the level of the conceptual overlay yeah into into the the basic elements of what's happening
0: this may seem kind of a steep path for many people but it seems pretty easy to invoke that intuition just by looking at any object I mean, again say that flashlight mm-hmm. and asking yourself what is it
2: mm-hmm. when you ask That's what so. it, you, you actually
0: realize you don't know what it is it's fundamentally mysterious i mean it's as an appearance it's as strange <laughs> as anything right it's like like it only you've, you've taken it for granted that you sort of know what this is but it is perceptually completely unexplained and inexplicable. And whatever you would use to explain it, like, well, I know it's made of atoms, and those were forged in, in the belly of stars, and I could make a guess as to what its actual composition is and who made it. All of that, again, is just an overlay of thought on this yes. perceptual, yes. you know, brute fact, which doesn't explain itself and is, on its own terms, a mystery. Yes, and just
1: one little addition to that uh, is: it's very interesting to see that most of our the reactivity in our mind is in relationship to the concepts we have about things, rather than to the bare experience itself. And so, just just as a simple example, but there are there are many examples of this. You know, maybe you're sitting. Uh, in meditation, and there's just different background noises that are not a problem. We're just aware of hearing, and the sounds are coming and going. But then maybe you know your partner or somebody you're living with is making a lot of disturbing noises. And the sound itself may be, in and of itself, no more disturbing mm. than the mechanical noises of the air conditioner. Yeah. But because of the concept, why is that person doing that? Why are they bothering me? So we get all reactive to the concept, not to the sound. And yeah. this is what happens fre- frequently throughout the day. And yeah. that's why it's so interesting to distinguish the concept from the bare experience. Yeah, no, it, it matters if you're, I remember
0: once being at a uh, a house near the beach it wasn't on the beach but there was, there was a, the coast highway between the house mm-hmm. and the beach and standing out on the deck and being told by you know the person I, you know, I was standing next to like you know isn't that great you can hear the you know the breaking of the waves and you know it's, it's totally pleasant to just be able to be there by the ocean and listen to breaking waves but then I realized that wait a minute what I'm hearing there is that's not waves that's the sound of traffic right so like so like there's right. this kind of negotiation yes. within my you know Consciousness yeah. about you know whether whether I should be pleased <laughs> with the sound of waves or annoyed by the sound of traffic. Exactly, and it's the exact same sound. Yes, yes. At least in that case. Okay, well, Joseph, we are unfortunately out of time because the rest of the day is demanding our attention. Once again, thank you for being on the podcast. You have brought benefit to many uh, many people who are either meditating or interested in adopting that practice. I think it was the fourth podcast we've done together. Is. Yeah. All right. Well. <laughs> let it not be the last, Joseph. Take care of yourself. We will do this before <laughs> <laughs> before either of us is fully enlightened or dead. So once yeah, again, thank so. you, Joseph.